My name is John Chambers. I am the pastor here. The, I'm not like the youth pastor, and they're just letting me preach today. I'm actually pretty old and <clears throat> been in ministry for a while. Um, as the video said, we've been going through the doctrine series um, here for a couple months or so. Uh, usually, this is a little different. Usually, we just pick a book of the Bible and just kind of go through it. And we have been going for lately the book of Matthew. I think we're about 80 sermons in the book of Matthew. And as we got to chapter 26, we saw that, hey, this, this sounds like an Easter kind of message. So we picked up Matthew 26, 27, 28, took 28, uh, chapter 28, and plopped it right down on Easter and counted back and realized that we're going to start chapter 26 sometime in February, um, and then it'll lead right into Easter. And so we saw that we had this fall open. We thought we'd do something a little bit different. So we've been going through a doctrine series. Um, to studying different doctrines of the faith. So we've looked at the doctrine of the word and Trinity and God and Jesus and salvation and those kinds of things. And today we're going to be <coughs> doing, excuse me, <coughs> had a uh, blueberry muffin between services. So anyway, we're going to be doing the doctrine of the church. And so the goal and doctrine of the church today, um, as we planned out these doctrines, we specifically chose uh, this particular day for doctrine of the church because Right when you're done, you're going to put this into practice by getting to go be the church. Right after service, you're going to walk outside, we're going to give you food, and you're going to go do a church-wide kind of mission project right here in Rock Hill. So we strategically picked the doctrine of the church today so that I could guilt you in through this sermon to go outside and be a part of the church and do our church-wide mission project. So I'm not really, I'm just kind of kidding, but kind of not kidding. So um, I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. So if you want to, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, just look underneath you. There should be a Bible there. You can grab that and take that as our gift to you. Um, and <clears throat> if you don't have one like at home and you just forgot it, take that one with you as well and just hand it out to someone uh, that doesn't have one. We have like tons of those. They're mega cheap and we want to get the Bible out to as many people as we possibly can. So, um, you know, take, let us be the Bible giving out ministry of yours. Take them each week and give out two or something. Um, anyway, so we'll be in Ephesians chapter four. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to be there. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of the church. Um, so, but before we do that, just one other thing I want to say, which is I'm just super proud like of, of Remedy and how we've kind of stepped up and, and participating in our churchwide mission project right afterwards. Last week, we had just a few people signed up. It was basically all my kids because I've got like 20. And so like that was basically all that had signed up. And then over the course of this week, um, we like quadrupled or, or even if there's a five dupled in, si- in size and how many people, I don't know what that word is, um, how many people are going to be uh, participating in the mission project. So I appreciate everybody jumping in. I'm just super proud of how everybody jumped in. We're going to be able to do a lot of stuff now in the, uh, in the mission project today. So let me pray, and then we're going to uh, jump right in into Ephesians chapter 4. And as usual, I do a little bit of an introduction. It takes me a little while, and then we'll jump in Ephesians 4. So let's pray. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to come here today, Lord, gather together as a church body um, and be able to study your word together. Um, God, I, uh, I confess just that I am utterly dependent upon your spirit right now. There's, there's no way that I can say or do anything in regard to preaching or really life without your spirit. And so I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come mightily, that you would speak through me and in me, God, that you would change me. And all of us here, as we hear from your word, that we would be changed by the Spirit. God, that we would deeply desire to want to walk in obedience to the things that we hear um, from your word. We know that these words are not primarily this pastor's words, but they're yours. And so we pray that um, because they're yours and not mine, that you would do a mighty work with them in our hearts. 
We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in regard to North American culture, I have been sleeping to the phenomenon that has been kind of growing under the surface. And I have only come to realize this phenomenon over, I would say, maybe the last month. I haven't been paying attention. I kind of um, sit in a room and read and kind of sit under a rock basically a lot. So um, I haven't noticed. I'm sure you actually have. You're probably far more astute to those kinds of things that I am. But all of a sudden, I cannot go anywhere to buy anything without being bombarded by Duck Dynasty stuff. Like Duck Dynasty gum and Duck Dynasty shoes and Duck Dynasty shirts and drinks. And I mean, it's everywhere. Like they're everywhere. These bearded, huge redneck guys are just everywhere. Um, And I don't know what happened. It kind of crept up all of a sudden and they've infiltrated our lives. These crazy rednecks and their show are just everywhere, Um, even in Christian bookstores. If you go to Lifeway.com, if you don't know what Lifeway is, that's like the uh, Baptist Mafia when it comes to bookstores. They, they control it all. But like if you go there and type Duck Dynasty, like a list or search of like almost a thousand things show up. There's, there's tons of stuff. And what happens in North American missiological culture, if you've noticed uh, in the churches, anytime one of these little recent phenomenons kind of pops up, we get all excited and we're like, oh, something that the world thinks is cool, something that America thinks is cool has a little Christian message to it. One of those guys is a Christian and we think it's all about them. Before Duck Dynasty, it was Tebow. And we're like, oh, Tebow. And before that, it was the guy from St. Louis Rams. We're like, oh, everything is all about them. We need to make Bible studies about Duck Dynasty and track Duck Dynasties. And we're going to hand out, you know, testaments with beards or something like we get all excited about it and we bank all of our hope in the next little phenomenon or the next little fad that can help us spread the gospel and the problem with that of course is that's not the answer there's always just been one answer not the next phenomenon that helps us preach the gospel instead we try to jump on these things the answer has always been the same it's the church it's a local body congregating themselves together, rising up, using their gifts, fulfilling the purposes of which they are called, and them, the church, proclaiming the gospel to their city. And we don't have to have the next little phenomenon to, to take something from the world that everybody think might, might be cool, Christianize it and say, oh, only if I have the Duck Dynasty Bible study can someone come to know Jesus in my family or in my neighborhood, etc. Um, it's always been the church. Now, I want to explain kind of how this has happened. Because there's been mission creep. I said that in the first service and uh, Stephen came up and goes, now what's mission creep or what is that? So I was like, I'm not talking about like Scooby-Doo at the end. There's like a big reveal and I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you dastardly kids. Like what, what I'm talking about is mission creep, which is we start on mission and then all of a sudden we creep away from what the mission was from other things that seemingly are good. And all of a sudden the most important thing to us is not the mission anymore. It's something else. We've, cre- we've crept away. That's mission creep. So what happened is this. This is to summarize kind of what happened. It's not this and it is something else. It's not that the church has a mission. It's that the mission has a church. Here's what I mean. If it's the church has a mission, then the church is the most important thing. And the church operates and it is supreme and it is all the most important thing. And that's what we need to make sure we happen. And then it had a mission and it was doing its work. And all of a sudden, this word mission added an S to the end of the word mission. Now, it seems kind of like semantics, but that was a huge shift over the last 200 years when it came to doing stuff. All of a sudden, mission became missions, and that's something that happens over there. Not in here, but over there. We get our best people, and we send them off to some island in the middle of nowhere, and they're doing missions. And all of a sudden, that's 
not what we're doing anymore, but all, all of a sudden we do missions as a compartmentalized segment of the church. We do missions, but we also do this, and we also do this, and we also do this. And we got to have a gym ministry, and we got to have, you know, whatever. You can fill it all in. We got baseball leagues, etc. And we got all these kinds of things that all seem decent and all seem good, but mission added an S and now it's compartmentalized. And when that happens and the church is the most important thing, everything happens to secure and keep going the church. And sometimes we don't do the mission anymore, but it's not that the church has a mission instead, which is, can some reasons be right, but instead it's the mission has a church. In other words, the mission is the most important thing. The mission is what's supreme. The mission is what calls the shots. The mission is what helps us make our decisions. Not the vitality of the church, but instead the ongoing moving of the mission. And God's, from eternity past, from the Garden of Eden, has always been on mission. God's mission, the missio Dei, is to seek and save the lost. From eternity past all the way to eternity future, right whenever the garden happened, he's always been fulfilling that mission, that missio Dei, seeking and saving the lost. That's why he sent his son to live. That's why he sent his son to the cross to die for us in our place. That's why he resurrected, showing that all the power was in the spirit and that we definitely can receive eternal life through faith in Christ. And so since the mission is the most supreme thing, that God is the one that's seeking and saving the lost, the way that he's going to fulfill that mission is the church. It's supreme. And what we're supposed to do then is do the mission. It's not that the church is the most important thing and one of the things we do is mission. But instead, the supreme thing is the mission and the mission has a church to fulfill it. That's huge. It seems like it might just be, I'm kind of throwing around some stuff. But when we've crept away from that, all of a sudden what happens is instead of the church being known for making disciples, reaching the lost, being on mission, we become known for other things. Really what happens is we become known for what we're against rather than what we're for or what we're about. Let me read you, a, uh, let me read you a <clears throat> an extensive research results. This is a guy named Dave Kinneman. He conducted an extensive research on how young Americans, people from their late teens to their early 30s, um, so basically what this means is anybody from late teens to early 30s, these are the people that think they know everything, right? Um, it's only whenever you get to your 40, you realize whenever you're 18 to 30, you don't know anything. But they, they did a research study on them to get their results. Um, but they do know some things, right? I'm just kind of kidding. I remember when I was that age, I was a moron. Um, but still just kind of like a little improved moron now at 38. But anyway, um, they did a research study on late teens to early 30s, both believers and unbelievers, And they asked these 18 to 30 year olds, they said, what's your perception of the church? When you think of the church, what do you think of? And this is the results. Listen to this. They're quite different than Acts chapter two, quite different than Acts chapter two. It says this. They view the 18 to 30 year olds view the church. They're known for what they're against rather than what they're for. And this is what it says. These 18 to 30 year olds said they view the church as anti-homosexual, 91%. They view the church as judgmental. 87% said that. They view the church as hypocritical, 85%. They view the church as old-fashioned, 78%. They view the church, this is probably huge in in the South especially, too involved in politics, 75%. They view the church as out of touch with reality, 72%. They view the church as insensitive to others, 70%. And lastly, they view the church as boring, 68%. Now, Let's be clear here, all right? Because you can hear that and you can say, what is he saying? Um, We need to understand that the church does have to take stands on things based on scripture. 
So I'm not saying that we don't rise up and say, like the scripture says, homosexuality is wrong. We agree with that. But instead of being known that that's what we're against and we're just against stuff, we do have to take stands on scripture. But instead, what the church's overall goal should be, the overall way we're known, the overall way that people perceive us is not what we're against, but instead what we're for. The difference is this. What I would desire, what I think that what we really want is they say, you know what? I disagree with them pretty vastly on some big issues. But man, I love them. And I can't get over just how much they love me. I've never ever loved someone or been loved by someone with someone I disagree with so, so much. But gosh, they serve me. Gosh, they love me. It's amazing how much they care about me. It's not fake. Like they really care about me. And that's the difference. That's the church being known about what we're for, about being known for the mission, about being known for spreading the gospel. So while I know we have to take stands on things based on Scripture, um, what we're missing out on, if that's all we're known for, is what we're called to do as the church. We're called to make disciples. We're called to be on mission. So today, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Um, Before we jump in talking about the church, there's something I want to say that I think is massively huge. Because we're called to be, I do this all the time, y'all just kind of bear with that. Um, We're called to make disciples. We know that we're called to make disciples. We know that we have to see people come to know Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, in the whole book of Matthew, all 28 chapters, Jesus only says the word church twice. Once in Matthew 18, when he's talking about church discipline, and once in Matthew 16, Matthew 16, verse 18. And what he says is this, I will build my church. So we know that as we're called to go make disciples, we know as we are, as the church, called to go be on mission, we know that there's this amazing promise of Jesus that says, as you're going to make disciples, there's this awesome promise of Jesus pushing us, excelling us out, saying, I'm going to build my church. It's kind of like this promise is pushing us in the back as we go. We have this the surety that something's going to happen, that Jesus is going to build his church. So as we go tell people about Jesus, as we're on mission and making disciples, we don't know what the level of fruit's going to happen, but what we're sure of is, as I say something, this huge promise from God himself is saying, he's going to build his church while we're doing it. People are going to come to know Christ as we are fulfilling his mission. What that specific level looks like in your life, I don't know. But it's going to happen. That gives me huge hope because if I don't have that, I'm just out there thinking. And if I'm not seeing fruit, I'm thinking, well, this ain't ever going to happen. I'm giving up. I'm going to go do, you know, some snow skiing or something. This seems way more fun like than this. But we know we have this amazing promise that Jesus is absolutely going to build his church. He's the head. He's the church planner. He's the builder. He's the chief shepherd. He's the he's always present with us. He's the judge. Finally, one day the church is his and he is going to build it. Absolutely. Which gives me great hope to know that as I'm doing his work, we're going to see some fruit. He's going to do something. Now, some purposes of the church, I think, are helpful as we jump into this specific text. There's a book called uh, Systematic Theology. And it's just by this theologian named Wayne Grudem. The theologian is just a guy that studies about God. Um, And he wrote this book. And in that book, it's massive. uh, There's one little specific chapter where he talks about the church. And the church, the doctrine of of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just the Greek word ekklesia, called out ones. Those who have been called out or adopted into the family. The study of those particular people, ecclesiology, study of the church. And so in that chapter on the study of the church, he 
he helps us understand that the church has basically three purposes. Um, you can look at church mission statements. We're called to da 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 They all sound the same, really. If you put them all beside each other, ours too. They all just basically say the same thing, right? We want to worship God. We want to help people grow in their faith. And we want to reach the lost. Um, most people kind of summarize it to say, up in, out. That's maybe the easiest way to remember. But all churches are called to do these three specific things. Number one, up. Ministry to God. That they're supposed to worship. This won't be on the screen. This is just me still doing intro. I, remember the intro things are kind of long. Anyway, so um, ministry to God. So every church has to, as Ephesians 1.12 say, live for the praise of his glory. Everything we do is for the glory of Jesus. And so we want to, as a purpose of, of us existing, is to worship God in here and as we go out, that's one of the purposes. That's the up aspect. We also have the end. So as we get together and there's Christians together, we want to see Christian A and Christian B help each other grow in their walk with Christ. Talk about Jesus and help each other become more and more Christ-like in their life. Um, this is called the ministry to believers. This is the nurture. This is, as Colossians 1.28 says, that we want to present every person mature in Christ. And this is, a, uh, this is an exercise that's not done Lone Ranger, John Rambo, out by yourself. Instead, it's people together, helping each other along through those things. Uh, you, you won't accomplish it by yourself as well as if you're trying to do it with others. Other people will always see blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots. And the next thing is, um, so that's up, that's in, and the next one's out. So as we nurture each other, we also want to go out. And there's people out in the world. There's people in our neighborhoods. There's people in our families. There's people in our college dorms or whatever that don't know Jesus. And this is the ministry to the world. This is evangelism. This is, as Matthew 28 says, making disciples of all nations, reaching them. So that's kind of the three purposes of the church. Every church exists to do those three things. And if, one of the, if churches are doing one of those things, more, ba- more heavier emphasis on that and neglecting the other two, then the church might be a little off balance. You need to do all three of those things just as full on as you can. And you don't want to overbalance or overcompensate to one of them. You want to do all three of those as, as well as you can. And then when you're doing that, you have a healthy church. Um, a definition of the church is this. This is Mark Driscoll, Vintage Church. He says this. So we're talking about a local body of believers is this. The local church is a community of, so that we, we know each other, of regenerated believers. That means that they're Christians. And also un- unbelievers can be a part of the community, but they're not part of the church. Um, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. So they have a good understanding of the gospel. They understand that the only way to know Jesus, the only way to be saved, the only way to receive eternal life is through Christ, faith in Jesus. John fourteen six, Acts four twelve, And then it says, in obedience to scripture, because the Bible says so, they organize themselves under qualified leadership. There's pastors and deacons, elders and deacons, if you will, that lead the church to do things. Under qualified leadership, they gather regularly for preaching and worship and observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion. So they get together on Sundays and they do exactly what we're doing here. And they're unified by the Spirit. And if they're um, not walking in Christ, they're disciplined for holiness. That means that they are told by other people or the the people in the church to help them grow in their Christ-likeness. But also, they're scattered then. So as they're here on Sundays, after they're done, they're scattered. And they're still the church. It's not like you're the church on Sunday for an hour. And then out there, you're just a whatever. You're, You're always the church. And so you're scattered as the church to go fill the great commandment to love your neighbors yourself and love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love and, to, and the great commission was just to do to do um, mission work, to make disciples in everywhere you go. And they're scattered to, as missionaries for the world to the world for God's glory and their joy. So that's a big definition of what the church is. Now, finally, Ephesians four. So as we understand all that, let's look at um, some aspects of a healthy church. And the reason why we're doing this, looking at some aspects of a healthy church is this. What we want 
in remedy is to have these aspects in our lives so that if ever somebody tries to ask people, what's your perception of remedy? We would, they would say, well, I do disagree with some of the things that they, that they say if they're not Christians, but wow, they love me. And so they, I really know them by what they're for and what they're trying to do for God, not what they're against. I know that they're against some things, but what I really know about them, my perception of them is that they love me, that they're not judgmental, but they, they love me, that they're not boring, but they are having vibrant joy in Christ. And so if we have these aspects in this church body, then that, that will be helping us achieve that goal that will help us grow into that. So as we look at these six things in regard to what a healthy body looks like, just think about yourself. Say, if I'm part of this church or if I'm part of whatever church, where is it in my life that I don't have these things? And how can I start pursuing those things in my life so that I can contribute and enhance the overall health of this, of this church body? All right, so verse one. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul writing, urge you, talking to Christians, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he's looking at them and he's saying, hey, you've been called to be like Jesus. So if you're called to be like Jesus, then you should walk in a manner that looks like Jesus. You shouldn't walk in a manner that doesn't look like Jesus. This is pretty obvious, simple stuff, but there's tons of Christians that don't do this, right? Tons of Christians. And so the first aspect then of a healthy church is this. Sanctification is present. Now, if you don't know that word means, I'm going to explain it. Sanctification is present, although progressive. Sanctification is just a big word. We talked about it last week. If you weren't here, you can just download that off iTunes. But basically, sanctification is the process of whenever you become a Christian, until you die, of becoming more like Jesus. Just the process of growing in holiness, seeing sin die off in your life, um, becoming more like Jesus, wanting to do more mission work for him, etc. And that little, that little progression or that growth is called sanctification. It just literally means set apart to be holy for Jesus. Um, and, and every Christian goes through this whenever they come to know Christ. And what we've noticed that is that it's progressive. It's not like one day you have a sin and the next day it's all gone. <laughs> Instead... We're progressively growing over time. This Holy Spirit's being gracious to us, reminding us that God's not mad at us and that he always loves us. There's no condemnation for us, and we're growing in that. Now, I quoted last week, actually, when it says, uh, walk in a manner worthy of that, you, that you've been called. John Calvin is looking at, at that verse as he continues through this idea of what a church looks like. He says in verse 1 that this statement is where all the following statements that come after this in regard to the church um, find their foundation. They found their grounding. So a sanctified church is absolutely necessary when it comes to fulfilling all these aspects of a healthy church. Last week, I quoted John Owen by saying, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. The full expansive quote is this, and I kind of hinted towards it, is this. You must always be at it, which is killing sin, while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's not a day that goes by that we as a church, we as Christians, should not be actively knowing our sin and trying to kill it with every single ounce of energy that we have. Now, what does that look like? Last week, I didn't say this. And because I didn't say it, I was like, oh, I wish I would have said that. But then this worked into the sermon. So I get one of those little redo kind of things, by the grace of God, to add one extra thing um, to the sermon from last week in regard to sanctification. Because I just said, you got to kill it. And I thought it'd be helpful to maybe give you a piece of um, biblical uh, advice, if you will, and what that really looks like besides just, okay, how do I do that? Um, 
In Psalm 119.11, it says this. Psalm 119.11, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So just picture like you've built huge warehouses and you're taking in God's word and you're memorizing it and you're just filling up these storehouses. And once that's filled up, you're going to build another one and you're going to memorize more of God's word and just going to keep building and building and memorizing and just filling up these huge storehouses with verses that you've memorized. What's the purpose though? Just to show people how good you can memorize? No. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So whenever temptation comes our way from the evil one, the specific sins that he knows that will entice us. We look into the word and we think, this particular sin is what entices me. I'm going to memorize all the verses that have to do with that particular sin. I'm going to keep storing up those things in my heart. I'm going to keep storing them up. So when that sin comes, I'm going to take these verses and I'm going to clobber the evil one and his temptations with that specific sin. A regard to pride, I'm going to memorize verses for pride and just destroy it. Let me give you one other verse that helps you see this. Um, in Ephesians six seventeen, we have the, the armor of God. And you have all these kind of things, you know, the, the helmet of truth, the belt of salvation, the shield of faith, and all those kind of things. And all of those things are defensive weapons. They're, if someone's about to clobber you, you stop them. If somebody's about to hit your head, thank goodness you have a helmet. Except for one thing. There's one offensive weapon in the whole ar- armor of God. It's the sword. And it, it's 617, it says, take the sword of the spirit. And you're like, all right, what's that? Then it says, which is the word of God? So as those temptations come, you take your big, huge, long memorized verses, these long swords of stuff with the temptations, or you got your little verses, you know, like Jesus whip, that's a little dagger, a little pocket knife, maybe. And you take those things and as those temptations come, you just stab them and crush them. You just kill them. So the reason, the way you, the way you're sanctified, the way that you're going to see sin die in your life is by memorizing long paragraphs and short little sentences. And listen, you can do it. I'm telling you, you can do it. I've got five children. Um, well, one of them can't talk. Praise God. The other four, <laughs> the other four can, and have, or they're very good at it. Um, and they can memorize scripture three, five, seven, and nine. If we sit down and, and teach them for almost three days, they'll memorize probably five to seven, at least eight verses in that three days, four days. I mean, their minds are just small and, and learning. For those of you that are older and can think in more advanced ways, I'm telling you, you can do it. Repetition helps you memorize and store up. And you're like, why would I want to do that? That you might not sin against God. The greatest reason. So we memorize long swords and we memorize little daggers. And when those temptations come, we crush those sins with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And sanctification, again, as we know, is us working in conjunction with God to see us become more like Christ. All for God's glory, primarily. And we're secondary beneficiaries of it by seeing sin die in our life. So we have to see this thing happen. Now, I want to highlight one other thing. If you look up here, you see there's verse 1, but I also have verse 15 and 16. And I didn't just tag them there accidentally. That wasn't a typo. Um, This actually goes into the uh, sanctification must be present in verses 15 and 16. What I want you to see here is you can say, okay, well... Sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, being more holy, etc. That sounds good. But really, that's for like, you know, the varsity players in the church. I'm really on the B team. It's not necessary for me. I've got a lot of stuff going on in life. I'm doing stuff. And so really, just as long as the leadership and the most important people in the church are doing that, then it's okay if I take take a break and don't worry about it this kind of right now. Which is the absolute, absolute um, lie. That's what I want you to see here in verse 15 and 16. It's everybody has to be doing this. Or 
there's a result that's not good. Look at 15 and 16. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we, this is the body, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head to Christ. This means we are all supposed to grow in our Christ-likeness, right? Now notice this right here. From whom the whole body, joined and held together, is just assumed that we would be together, that we would be in community right there in 16. It's assumed that the church is going to be together as often as possible. Held together by every joint which, which is equipped. Watch this. When each part, every person that's at the part of the body is working properly, makes the body grow. So as every person that's part of the body is seeking sanctification, every part is utilizing their gifts, every part is doing all the things, that's what makes the body grow. If only some of it are doing it, the body's not going to grow the way it should. So if, if you're really committed to this church and you really want to see Remedy Church as spiritually grow as strong as we can... Every person in the church, wherever you are, new, been here a long time, new Christian, just visiting, you're in a community group, doesn't matter, wherever you are, every single one of you has to be pursuing sanctification. If you don't, we don't grow as a church body spiritually like we should. And so every person has to be doing this. It's absolutely essential that everybody's doing it so that the church can grow. So... Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body will only grow if all of us are pursuing sanctification. Now, I know we'll still achieve levels of personal sanctification, personal holiness, and the church can still be used by God. I'm aware of those realities. But I'm also aware that the way that we grow the best is every person joining in on this. Every person. So we absolutely need you. Um... One healthy aspect is that every person has sanctification present in their life, even though it's progressive, even though it's slow moving. All right. The next one is in verse two. Look what it says. So we must be called, uh, um, walking as a man which we are called with all humility and gentleness and love and, and patience, bearing with one another in love. And so we have this idea of love, kind of the umbrella helping us see that's what should be there. And underneath that, some, some examples of what love looks like is humility and gentleness and patience. So the second aspect of a healthy church body is love is consistently shown. It's just consistently shown. Remember that that research that they said. One of the things that people said is that they are um, insensitive to others. Seventy percent said that the church is insensitive to others. This is not loving. We, because we're all sinful people, can lean over towards selfishness. We can lean into impatience, easily lean over into entitlement, and laziness, I'm supposed to get this because I'm, because I did, right? That's entitlement. And that's not, that's kind of the opposite of these examples. What he wants us to do is instead is be humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with one another. We're supposed to be loving. That's the way that ch- the, the, the people that don't know, that don't know the church are, are kind of trying to look at the church and see what they're, what they're all about. The way that they should know us is by our love. They should say, these people are more humble and more gentle and more patient than anybody I know. So just ask the question, are you humble? Or are you prideful? Are you gentle? Or are you harsh? Are you more patient with others? Or are you more patient with yourself and less patient with others? If you don't get your way, do you fly off the handle? You will be those things if 
the overall mindset that you have is that I want to be known for the love that I have for people because of Christ's love for me. Christians, I want you to, don't miss this. This is one of the most important things. You have the capacity to be more loving than anybody else because you have been shown more love than anybody else. No one can love better than you because no one has been shown more love than you have. Take that in. That's, that's astounding. So one of the aspects that we should be known by is our love. The next one is here in verse 3. This is important. This is really important. So that also we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we want peace in the church. We want unity in the church. We don't want disunity. So the third aspect of a healthy church is this, is that unity is upheld by all. Unity is upheld by all. Now, we've got to be careful here because um, when, you, when you hear that, you can think to yourself, oh, well, I'm not allowed to disagree. The only thing I'm allowed to do is kind of toe the party line. I'm supposed to keep my mouth shut and whatever they say, that's what I got to do. <laughs> that is not it at all. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying agreements or disagreements that we might have, they're fine. Like, I'm assuming that when it comes to theological things or maybe even methodological things, the doctrine or the way we try to do church, I'm assuming we're going to disagree on things. I, I'm assuming that, right? But what I'm also assuming is that we're not going to disagree in, well, the most important thing is making disciples, right? The most important thing isn't that we agree on the study of end times, right? How you view um, eschatology and how I view eschatology, the study of end things, it doesn't really matter that we totally agree on every aspect for us to make disciples, right? We're probably going to disagree on some things. So what we mean by when we say unity is upheld by all, it means this. Um, Jack was in our first service. He's our other elder, our other pastor here. It means that anytime you have disagreements with us, we want to know those. We want to hear your, your things that you have to say. And we'll have the conversation and we'll try to, we'll try to square away. If I need to be sharpened, I, I want you to tell me and help me understand things better if I'm saying things incorrectly and vice versa. So we'll have those conversations and we're free to disagree theologically, methodologically, etc. But in those disagreements, we can't let that secondary or tertiary thing that we might think is very important get us off track and all of a sudden we have disunity and we're all arguing over end times rather than keeping our minds focused on the main thing, the proclamation of the gospel, seeing people meet Jesus, being on mission, growing our church in believers and unbelievers. See what I'm saying? So we want unity. That's what we're supposed to strive for. Unity in the most important thing. We strive for that. But we also can have disagreements. And so what happens is, generally, the way unity is disrupted is preferences or desires become primary. That's what happens. That's, in all the churches I've been in, whenever there's a split, you know, kind of the bad word split, whenever there's one of those things, generally, it's rarely over someone misunderstood the gospel, right? It's usually over, you know, color the carpet or <laughs> we don't like drums because they're from the devil, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I think y'all don't think that since you're here. So I'm not trying to like stir up something. Um, but my point is that the goal as a church is to pursue unity in the most primary things. And as we have disagreements, we need to have them. That's fine. Like we grow together in the gospel. We have, we have a very Christ-like disagreement if we disagree. Perfect. And we, we have that discussion and we realize that that's just a secondary thing. Maybe we'll, we'll come together and maybe we won't. 
but we both agree that the primary thing is making disciples. The primary thing is the mission. The mission has a church, and that's us. And we are to show the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3.10, to the, to the world. And so we want to uphold unity in the spirit of the bond of peace and making sure that happens. And we don't want anything to get us off track on seeing people meet Jesus. That's what we mean when we say that. So, of course, tell us the things that you might disagree with. But for the sake of the mission, we don't have disunity come in and we argue about smaller theological things. Um, the next one is verses 4, 5, and 6. Before I read it, I want you to notice something here. So there's what Paul has done is he's taken tons of doctrine and tons of things about God, and he's tried to simplify it down into, into some short uh, sentences and phrases. And so you'll even notice a little pattern. Um, if you look, you can see that in <clears throat> verse 4, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And in verse 5, he talks about Jesus the Lord. In verse 6, he talks about God the Father. So you can see a little, little trinity in there. And as he does that, in each particular verse, he talks about maybe the work that each thing does. You can see in verse 4, he talks about the work of the Spirit and some of the things he does. You can see in verse 5, he talks about the Lord, the Je- Lord Jesus, not the Lord, the Jesus, but Jesus, the Lord. And he talks about some of the things that are important to know about Jesus and then God, the father and how things are all for him. So he's packed a lot of theology in there. So let's read it and let's let's talk about what that means. It says in verse four, there's one body. That's the church. So we have we know that there's the church universal, every Christian all time that are represented by these local church bodies and one spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. He's God. Just as you were called to one hope. So you were called by the Spirit into the family of God. And by one hope, it's just the gospel. The good news of Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. No one else comes to the Father except through him, John fourteen six. And so we know that that's the, our only hope is the good news, the gospel that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, there's Jesus, and there's one faith. Only faith in Jesus is the only way that we can be saved. And then we're baptized. That baptism is the symbol of our old man going down and being buried and the new man coming up in the newness of life and the spirit. Lots of theology in there. Paul's trying to compact it in. And then it says, and one God, the father. So we see the father of the Trinity of all who is over all and through all and in all. So everything, all this good news that he's talked about in those previous two verses are all for God's glory. So in verses four, five, and six, what I see, and what I think we all see then, is the gospel. We see the good news of Jesus coming, dying for us, giving his life, that faith in him is the only way that we can be saved, and we were called by the Spirit, and it's all for God's glory. So, the fourth thing that I want you to see, that an aspect of the healthy body is this, is that, number four, there it is. The gospel is clear, just as Paul's made it simple, and clearly communicated by all. So that's huge, that second part. So a healthy aspect is that whenever people are attending, maybe a Sunday morning gathering or a community group or anything, is that the gospel's clear. We know what the gospel is. Gospel just means good news. Euangelion is the Greek word. It just means good news. We know what the good news is. The good news is, is that we don't have to die in our sin, that Jesus came and made a way for us to be saved. That's the good news. But it's also not just clear, but then it's clearly communicated by all, which means... You don't want, for the only person that knows how to tell people about Jesus, is me. You don't want that. That's, that's backwards. That's an aspect of an unhealthy church. Instead, you want everybody in the church that, know, that should, should know how to preach the gospel, tell, communicate the gospel, articulate the gospel to people. So, 10 months ago, um, one of our community groups decided that they were going to, every time they got together, they were going to say the gospel. It didn't matter who was there. It didn't matter if it was three people there and all of them were Christians or 25 people there and it was a big mixture of Christians and non-Christians. 
Every time they got, to, got together, they were going to preach the gospel to both Christians and non-Christians. Christians, you have to hear the gospel so that you don't try to revert back to works righteousness and think that the only way that I'm going to be right with God is if I re- pray and read my Bible and blah, 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 and you're putting all your hope in what you're doing rather than what Christ has done. So we all need to remember it's all based on Jesus and the cross that I'm, I'm right with God. Even if I've been in the faith 20 years, he's not more happy with me if I'm reading my Bible and praying. Certainly he wants me to do those things, but my right standing with him is only based on Jesus dying on the cross for me. And because of that, I want to pray and read my Bible and do mission work, etc. So we have to preach the gospel to believers, but also unbelievers. How else will they be saved? And so they've been doing that for 10 months, every time they get together. And they're doing it now at the children's attention home where they serve. Every time they get there, whoever's there, doesn't matter how many people, somebody, and they rotate around, all of them have opportunities to tell the gospel to each other. People have gotten saved in their community groups because of that. So you've got to be able to communicate the gospel. Now, you might not do it perfectly. You might be the most articulate, articulate at it at first. I can't even talk. So you might not be good at it, right, at first. But you keep trying, you keep saying it to your roommate and to your spouse and to your accountability partner. If there's children around you, do it to them. Like, you've got to learn how to speak simply. Just tell it to a three-year-old or a five-year-old and see if they can say it back. If you're not ever around kids, perfect. All you got to do is serve downstairs once a month, two times a month. You'll be around them. They're hilarious. They're awesome. And you can just practice telling our kids the gospel once a month, two times a month. It's great for you to be able to practice articulating the gospel and in your community groups, with your accountability partners, etc. You've got to be able to learn how to say the gospel to each other. The gospel must be articulated and communicated fully by every person of the church, not just the pastor. You all need to strive to be fluent in the gospel language and the gospel word. And I keep saying gospel, but it's because I want us to understand that no matter where we are, what context we are, we need to be able to in 30 seconds or 30 minutes, tell somebody about what Christ has done for them. And so we just got, we got it. It takes time. That's fine. No one's mad at you. No one's saying, hey, you stink because you can't do it in 30 seconds. That's no big deal. That's what grace is about, right? But come in and join and start. This is an aspect of a, of a healthy church is that we, we come in, we say, hey, I, I don't know if I can do that at all. I'm like, that's not a big deal. Like, there's things I stink at, Right? Let's, let's get on the path of walking down towards that and let's all be a part of it. So hop in and, and jump in with, part, with, with doing that. You, don't want that, um, you don't want that if your friend isn't a Christian that you think, well, the only way they can become a Christian is if I take them on Sunday and FUD preaches the gospel and they get saved that way. That's the only way. I'm FUD, by the way, if you didn't know. Um, that's the only way they'll ever get saved because I certainly can't tell them. Well, that is a way, but it's not the only way. Like, they don't know me. They might think I'm crazy, <laughs> right? They know you. They have a relationship with you. You are in their class or you work with them. They know you personally. And so when you tell them, certainly it's got to mean more than me, right? It's got to. So we all need to strive to, especially in this postmodern culture where um, this kind of lifting up and, and position of the pastor is kind of uh, looked at and revered. That's gone. Modernism is out of the window. We're in postmodern, even post-postmodernism. The world doesn't revere pastors anymore if they're not Christians. And so that's why it's absolutely necessary that you know how to speak the gospel. You will probably have more effectiveness than me, even though if you can't say it maybe as precise as I can because I went to seminary. So become fluent in the, in the gospel. Become fluent in the gospel. All right. Um, the next one is, this is quite important. Um, this is my favorite one, maybe. 
It's in verse 7. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, now he's going to quote Psalm 68, 18 right here. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then in verse 9 and 10, but basically what 9 and 10, they're going to sound very confusing, but basically it's just kind of in a big, broad way telling us about Jesus' life. That he left heaven, that he came down here and he, he lived and then he went back up to heaven. It says this, in saying he ascended, does it mean that... <clears throat> What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? I think that just means earth. I don't think it means hell. I think it means earth. So that Jesus left heaven and came to earth. He lived here and then he died and he went to the cross and then he was resurrected. And he says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. That means all the way to heaven, far above the skies, all the way to heaven, that he might fill all things. So basically all it does there is just kind of tell us about Jesus. He came down, he lived, he died, he was resurrected and he went back and he's taking that verses 9 and 10, and he's connecting it to verse 8. It's really important. And in verse 8, it says, in verse 7 and 8, it says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So let me give you the point, and then I'll explain it. The, the next one is this. It's talking about, he's talking about spiritual gifts right here. And he's saying spiritual gifts have been given to us by Jesus, and they're regularly ex- exercised for the body's edification, not our personal edification, primarily. I should put the word primarily after personal edification. So what, what he's saying here, as he's quoting Psalm 68 and saying, he led on high a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In Psalm 68, basically in the Old Testament, what would happen is if there was a war that we're having with another people, we would go over there and we would raid them. And this happened quite often in the Old Testament. And we would just beat them down, right? And as we beat them down and we won, that meant we were allowed to take everything there. We were allowed to take all their stuff and bring it back to our, because we led the captive, we won the victory, we can bring it back and we can disperse it to all of our people. One of the commentators I read said that this stuff that they took was literally called the booty. So they could take the booty and take it and bring it home. No one laughed first service, but I thought it was hilarious. And they came over here and they brought the booty all home and they gave it out to people. The, that's the loot. That's the stuff that they got, right? And what he's saying is, is the exact same thing. Because Christ led the triumph and came over here and had the victory by coming down and living the perfect life and going to the cross and dying for us and resurrecting. And he is the one that led the victory. He is the one that won. Now he can take all the spiritual gifts and lead us all back and disperse the spiritual gifts as freely as he wants to to every single person. Because he is dispersing the, the spoils of the victory, the gifts to every single person. That's, that's the idea of what he's saying here. So every person that is a Christian has been given a spiritual gift and Christ has given it to you because he has won the victory. It's all his. He can freely give you all those gifts. Now here's the amazing thing. Those spiritual gifts that he's given every single Christian are not primarily for your personal edification. They are for your personal edification, but not primarily. Let me give you a couple verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, that just means a gift, a spiritual gift, for the common good. So the reason why you have this gift, there's a big list in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. The reason why you have these gifts, and if you don't know what they are, the spiritual gift inventories are helpful. But the best thing to do is go talk to somebody that knows you, that's a Christian, and say, what do you think my spiritual gifts are? That's probably the best thing to do. The reason why you have that is not so that you can just see yourself grow into this awesome Christian. That's one of the reasons, but the primary reason you've been given a gift is that you can take it and you can use it to help the body grow. 
says that again in 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, strive to excel in building up the church. So here's the question. What are your spiritual gifts? And as you become aware of what they are, do you think to yourself, how am I using this gift to build up the church? Am I even thinking that way? Am I just thinking, I, I want my gift, I'm going to help myself grow, and it makes me nervous to even try to say I have a gift or, or, or do that. I just want to stay back. I just want to be behind the scenes. I don't even want anybody to know. I have this thing. I'm awesome at, you know, whatever, but I'm never going to use it because that makes me nervous, and I don't want people to know. That's, that's the wrong mindset. The reason why you've been given that gift, the re- because God, Jesus has won the victory and dispersed it to you freely, is because he wants you to take it and use it for the body to grow. And by that, you'll grow. But it's not just for your own edification primarily. The reason why you have it is for the church to grow. So, please, 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 please use your spiritual gifts here at Remedy. I, I don't, I'm not just saying we need it. Literally, we can't do it without you. That's why you're here. He balances us out with all of our, God balances us out with all the giftings that we have. And if you're not using it, then we don't have it. So we need for you, if you're the arm, we need you to be the arm or else we're just, we're just one arm person, right? If, we, if you're the leg, we're just hopping around, right? So we, you have to be whatever it is. If you're the thumb, like imagine life without the thumb. You can't do anything. We need for you to use your gift or the body doesn't work as effectively. That's why he says in verse 15 and 16, when each part does its work, that's what makes the body grow. So we have to have you. Whatever your gifting is, please use it or else we won't be as effective in the city. We won't be as effective at our mission. Um, I'm going to come back to that 9 and 10 because I know it's kind of strange language. I don't want to plug it in also in verses uh, in this last sec- section. But look at verse 11. And this is the last one. Now, um, I think verse 11, 411 is really a listing of spiritual gifts, not of offices in the church. However, having said that, um, I do think, even though it's a, primarily a list of gifts like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, um, he does actually talk about an office in the church, right? He talks about, um, you can see there, pastors, teachers. And so since he does talk about it, I think that there is an application for leadership. So let's look at verse 11 and kind of following. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. Um, these are gifts, the pastors and the teachers. Some people are gifted in evangelism. Some people aren't. I don't have the gift of evangelism. It doesn't mean I don't have to do evangelism. We still have to do it. If you don't have the gift, you still have to do it. There's a guy I know uh, back in seminary who had the gift of evangelism. It didn't matter where we went. We're like picking up Papa John's pizza. In five minutes, he's telling this guy about Jesus. And sometimes the guy would get saved. I'm like, Noah, how do you do that? Like, I'm just fumbling around trying to talk about pepperoni. And you're already like into the gospel. How do you do that? Um, but he just had the gift. Like, it didn't matter. He was going to get to, to, to the gospel with in three minutes and it was always normal and the person never ever felt like whoa Noah like it was like wow how do you do that so anyway back to the thing here so these are gifts like people have gifts but we certainly have to be an evangelist so here's the gifts evangelists pastors and teachers now he talks about pastors and teachers here so there's an application here that we have to key in on there's leadership in the church as it tells us in verse 11 some of these guys are key leaders in the church pastors teachers etc um, and those leaders have a job. They have something that they should be doing in the church. Now watch what it says in verse 12 that those leaders are supposed to be doing. So these, he gave these people to, or these gifts, but primarily they're done through these people, to, here it is, 
equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's interesting. Don't, don't miss that. To equip the saints to do the work of ministry. When I grew up in church, I always just thought, well, the people that do the ministry are the people that are paid by the church. I attend. I listen to them talk on Sunday. I'm bored to tears. I go home and I play basketball. Like, that's what I do. That was, that was me as a kid into college. Um, but I didn't realize that actually, as I attended the church, the people that are here and me were all the ministers. I thought... They do the ministry, they do the work, I come and listen and go home and try to do stuff if I can. But he's saying that the primary job of the leadership is to equip you to go do the ministry. To equip you. I'll join you, but really, the primary job of you is to go do the work of ministry. So it's not, hey, how do I do ministry? Oh, the pastor does it, or the staff does it. No, no. The way ministry gets done is, you're the ministers, and I'm just joining with what you're doing. Huge, huge mindset shift that has to happen there. So the sixth thing is this. Um, pastors, elders, leaders, a sign of a healthy church body is that pastors, elders, and leaders will equip the church to do the work of the ministry. It doesn't mean I don't do work in the ministry with you. Of course I do. It's not, I'm, just, I'm not just the coach, right? I'm the player coach. I'm Pete Rose, right? I'm in there with you in the ball game. I'm also going to give some instruction, but then I'm down there back in the ball game. If you don't know who that is, like he got kicked out of baseball, gambled. Not a good guy. But anyway, um, back to this. I'm not Pete Rose, actually. Strike that, but I'm like that. All right, so <laughs> didn't use that in first service. Should have not used it in second. Anyway, um, I am the, uh, the pastor of the church. Jack is the pastor of the church, and our, our main job is to equip you, and I still do it with you. But it's a sign of an unhealthy church if the pastors are doing all the ministry and you're not doing any. That's a sign of an unhealthy church. It's a sign of a healthy church if the pastors are the only ones that know how to communicate the gospel. And you don't. So we want you to come and join us and make disciples together. And hopefully, as the Lord would grant me insight and wisdom to know how to, to train you and encourage you and to equip you, that you would go and make disciples. And I would go with you. It's just, I mean, this is simple mathematics, right? If I am trying to make disciples by myself... And all of y'all are trying to make disciples with me. How, many more, how much more effective would all of us be together than me by myself? It's just obvious, right? And so the work of ministry is all of us. As, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that we're all ministers of reconciliation. God himself making his plea through us to others. Be reconciled to God. Every single one of us are ministers of reconciliation. So we want you to join with us. And making disciples. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like then to make disciples? I've kind of been pushing that. Make disciples. Be on mission. Do ministry. Um, and I think the easiest way for the, un, us to understand that is right there in verses 9 and 10. These strange verses that are telling us about Jesus leading the victory. But let's notice something, right? He ascended. But what does that mean? That he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. Jesus left heaven... And descended to earth. He incarnated himself. He became human. He's God and man. He left where everything was easy. And awesome. He's in heaven. And he came down. And he rubbed shoulders with the sinners. So that is our model. John 20, 21 says this. Jesus is looking at his disciples. And he says. As the father has sent me. So I 
sinew. As the Father has sent Jesus to come down, incarnate himself, descend into the earth, and be with unbelievers, be around unbelievers, and tell them the truth of the gospel. As Jesus has been sent by the Father to do that, Jesus says, so I send you to go and live amongst people that don't know Christ. Don't seclude yourself off on an island in Christian land and do Christian stuff just with Christians and eat testaments and never hang around the unbelievers. Instead, you go and you hang around people that don't know Christ. Not in a way that you participate in their sin. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying that you know them and you're around them. So how do you do this work of ministry? How do you do that? Exactly like Jesus. Incarnate yourself, if you will, into the people in your city, your neighborhood, your college, family, whatever. I mean, like, I know plenty of sinners in my family. <laughs> Perfect. Get around them. Talk to them about Jesus. Just like Christ here. Hang around them. Know what they know. Like what they like. If they like hockey, you become a hockey fan. Even if you hate hockey. Like, become a hockey fan. And watch the games with them. If they like cats, try to, the best that you can, to like their cats. You know what I mean? Whatever it is they like, go with them to those things and do those things. And as you're doing those things, do life with them and tell them about Christ. Let them see this love that we're supposed to be known by. Where they say, you know what? It's odd. I, I disagree with you on so many things. But, but wow, I don't know anybody that cares about me and loves me like you. Oh, you, you want to know why? Jesus. I, I'm not built that way. I'm not built to love. Christ is built to love. He's helping me know how to love. Let me tell you about him. So this is what we mean. Just like Christ incarnated himself, as the Father has sent Jesus, so Jesus is now, John 20, 21, sending you. Not in the same way as Jesus. Like Jesus was sent to the cross. You're not dying for anybody's sins on the cross, right? We're recipients of Jesus' work on the cross. But we go like Jesus, and we hang around people that don't know Christ, not participating in their sin, but certainly loving them the way Jesus loved them. And telling them of the good news of the gospel. So to conclude here, as we're looking at this, what are the areas that you need to maybe improve at? We're looking at aspects of what a healthy church looks like. Where are you needing work? Sanctification? You, you're not sanctified at all. You don't even think about trying to kill sin. Or maybe it's love. You're not loving. You want to. You're thinking now, maybe I should be. But as you look at it, you're not humble or gentle. You, you have a big, huge sense of entitlement. Perhaps it's gifts. You have an amazing spiritual gift that you're not using in this church. We need you. Maybe it's unity. Maybe everywhere you go, every church seems to split. And the one thing that is in common to all those is you. And you are not striving for unity. How can you maintain unity in the bond of the spirit of peace? Perhaps it's just becoming fluent in the gospel. All this is new to you to think, talking about that and trying to learn all the language. And listen, we're not trying to teach you Christianese, right? We want you to just talk in your normal language about Jesus and what he's done for you and what he's done for all of us by going to the cross. So here's the deal. Like you hear those things, and you're like, I stink at all of them. Me too. I stink at a lot of them too. So I'm not saying feel bad. I'm saying it's okay. That's perfectly fine. If you're looking for the perfect church and you join it, it's not anymore, right? Because you joined it. Because none of us are perfect. So it's fine. So what I'm saying is, come here and hang out with us and let's do it together. Let's do this. 
None of us are going to be great at it, but we're going to strive for it. We're going to strive for love. We're going to strive for unity. We're going to strive for sanctification. We're going to strive to get better at gospel fluency. We're going to strive at making disciples. We're not going to do it great. None of us are going to do it perfect, but God's gracious. Jump in with us. It's okay that you might be a mess. We're all to a degree a mess. That's the great message of the gospel. And he forgives all of that and helps us start growing into his likeness. So come and be the church with us. Maybe some of you might need to think your approach to church. That you're thinking you can just do it out there. You can't. You got to join and be a part of a local church. That's the way you do mission. God's plan is the church. So you need to rethink mission. You need to rethink making disciples and you need to rethink the work of the ministry, that you're a minister as well, which is fine. That's what we're here for. Let's all learn this together. I'm going to do my best and Jack, the other elder, will do his best to equip you as best as we can. So let's do it. I'm going to pray and we're going to have a time of response. The way we do it here is we try to hear from the word and then respond. Good three, four songs. We don't just think and like go to lunch. Like we don't pray, hear a sermon and go to lunch. We try to have some time after the sermon where we can think and process and pray and repent and then stand and sing to Christ. And then after that, we have a perfect opportunity for all of us to go be the church today. I'll give you some more instruction on that in just a little bit. But just be obedient to however the Spirit's leading right now. Whatever God's leading, jump in. We'd love for you to jump into this messy, awesome church and do this with us. Let me conclude with this. One commentator says this on Christ's promise to build his church. This is awesome. He says, we have Christ's promise that he will build his church despite the church's compromised, ambiguous, schismatic, that just means causing division, sinful character, despite the church's character, the covenant of redemption of the gospel ensures God's faithfulness will have the last word. That's awesome. Jesus is going to build his church no matter what. Jump in and let's do this together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Would you be with us now as we respond? I pray that all of us would examine our hearts and think about some of the aspects that make up a healthy church and look at our lives and and say, are we contributing the aspects of this healthy church or not? Maybe we need to be more sanctified. Maybe we need to be more loving. Maybe we need more fluent in the gospel, whatever, Lord. All these things can be true, but what's great is that your gospel is awesome. It's amazing. It forgives all these things and invites us in. It doesn't reject us and push us away, yet the gospel always invites us in to go deeper with you. I pray that all the people here would hear that and respond. If anybody here doesn't know Jesus, has never crossed the line of faith, has never put their faith in Jesus and been forgiven of their sin, I pray that they would do that this morning. They would let the person they came with know, let me know, God, that we would all get to rejoice that they become a Christian today. Be with us now as we respond. I pray that we would be obedient to your spirit's leading. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.